tis space. We set our play amongst the stars. The dark of night be the final frontier. We know not whence these voyages of ours take starship enterprise, rich jewel most dear. Its five-year mission, star-crossed though it may be, gallantly exploring strange and brave new worlds. New life and civilizations we seek thee, by shuttle and warp each looming globe unfurls. To boldly go, spurred by our crystalline core, where no man a woman born has gone before. Welcome to Two World Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. And this is our ninth episode. We are looking at Shakespeare and Star Trek. Number nine, number nine, number nine. We have a special guest, Star Trek and Shakespeare fan, Trevor Rhines. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. I will. There will be spoilers. Damn it. Just, just be ready. There's a guy named Shakespeare. He wrote plays. And there was a show called Star Trek. And we're going to talk about it. So there you go. That's your spoiler alert. Thanks, Troy. We are recording this session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, Troy and Trevor know each other. And my fiance knows Trevor. So there. Now, hold on here, David. Hold on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to put Trevor off for a second. But. You said fiancé for what might be one of the very last times you will ever say that word in reference to Miss Alexa Carroll. Isn't that right? Yeah, we're recording this episode on Saturday, July 17th. We'll be married on Saturday, July 24th. By the time people hear this episode, we will actually be married. So that's time travel for you. Woohoo! And... Uh... And that's that's right. So congratulations. All the best to the two of you in the future. And uh, shall we proceed with show number nine? Number nine? Number nine? Number nine? Let's do it. All right. Trevor Rhines is an actor, musician, writer, notorious punster, and board game designer and developer with a background in astrophysics who is quoted on DNA in the Dictionary of Canadian Quotations. Since the start of the pandemic, he's performed online, of course, in every single one of Shakespeare's plays with the quarantine players. As a composer, he's written music for many theatrical productions, including the incidental music and songs for two Shakespeare productions. As a voice actor, his low, rumbling voice has been heard on stage with orchestras as well as on tv radio film documentaries audio dramas radio plays and even other podcasts welcome trevor oh hello there thank you for having me on great to have you trevor how are you things are good well over here and with you things could not be better um before we get into shakespeare and star trek troy and i would uh, like to know about your early genre 
loves and all-time faves. This is something we like to ask our guests. We want to know how you were first introduced to the speculative genre, whether it be the written word or a cinematic universe. Too Old Farce Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. I think that Klingon Chancellor Gorokhan said it best when he said, you have not experienced Shakespeare until you have read him in the original Klingon. Uh, when we talk about speculative genre, we are looking at things that could not happen in real life. Some of the categories in the speculative realm include, but I'm not limited to, science fiction, fantasy, horror, utopian, dystopian, alternate history, apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, apoplectic. Speculation, superhero, supervillain, supernatural, super trooper, beams are going to blind me, time travel, extraterrestrial life, magic realism, retrofuturism, alternate reality, parallel universes, quests, fictional universes, made up shit, anime, manga, celebrated creatures, mythical monsters, dolls that come alive, space opera, urban fantasy, folklore, fairy tale, myth, foundational stories, animals that talk. Origin myths, paranormal romance, magic, witchcraft, hokey weapons and ancient religions, advanced robots. Robots that are so advanced, they are indistinguishable from magic. Cornfields, interstellar travel, aliens, mutants, face huggers, spiders that write messages in their webs. Invisibility, mad scientists, swamp monsters, cyborgs, ghosts, and combinations. Trevor, what was your first speculative genre memory well i'm really trying to think i think what would be my earliest exposure oddly enough i think that would probably be land of the lost which started in 1974 when i was five so it, it was just so different from the other saturday morning cartoon fodder um when i was little you know stop motion and puppet dinosaurs and aliens and, you know, new world every 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 Saturday morning. Uh, I'm still find myself wondering if those poor folks ever managed to get find their way home again. <laughs> um, thanks, Trevor. And when it comes to your all time genre faves, um, here are some rapid fire questions about your favorite genre things. We're just looking for titles, but if you feel the urge, you can expand a bit. We do wish to get to talking about Shakespeare and Star Trek soon. So if Troy can ask these questions, that would be great. I can do that. Trevor, what's your favorite genre movie? Uh, time Bandits. Got to be Time Bandits. When I, when I met Terry Gilliam, which was at the cast party for Tidelands, which is a long story, uh, I thanked him for Time Bandits. I, I told Gilliam that after leaving the cinema, uh, after seeing Time Bandits with my dad, I was saying to myself, thank you. Someone else in this world thinks like me. And Gilliam just smiled, shook my hand, and said conspiratorially, you are not alone. That is awesome. Where did you meet Terry Gilliam? It was at the uh, cast and crew party after the, their screening of Tidelands. Nice. I was somebody's plus one. Who? <laughs> What's your, uh, your favorite genre TV show, Trevor? As will no doubt come as no surprise to you, that would be The Twilight Zone. Uh, the original Rod Serling series, of course. Um, I just love how every episode is its own beautifully crafted short story. And, and so many of them are really based on these amazing short stories. Uh, everyone being so internally consistent uh, as, a, as a world with a whole new cast of characters each time just makes it compelling and shocking. And it always made me as a little kid think about the, the world around me in new ways, sometimes a bit suspiciously. <laughs> they, they still do set me mulling them every time I watch them now. Right. Well, now I'm curious to know if 
the Twilight Zone will lead into our next question, which is what's your all-time genre episode of <laughs> what's your all-time genre TV episode is what I really want to say. Uh, oddly enough, it is on topic. Uh, I'm going to choose cause and effect uh, Star Trek Next Generation season five, episode 18. Uh, when when the episode first aired back in 82, I was watching, and when they blew up the Enterprise before the opening credits, <laughs> I, I swear that I felt the shockwave bouncing back and forth from coast to coast, from trekkie to trekkie, until the first commercial rig finally ended. Um, it's one of the best in instances of what I lovingly call the what the factor. Um, th this was oddly enough one of the Next Generation episodes, which I uh, first showed my son Malcolm to get him hooked on Star Trek. Uh, that and Darmok, and then uh, from the original series, Arena, and of course, The Trouble with Tribbles. Um, just to put you guys on the spot, what episodes from Star Trek would you show someone to get them hooked on the series? Well, for TNG, um, I'm a huge fan of Darmok. That, I find it just such a moving episode. Um, original, well, I'm an Ellison guy, so maybe City on the Edge of Forever, although... I mean, it's hard to go wrong with the mock time. David? Yeah, for me, that's a, that's a great question, but that's not even like what our favorite episode or whatever it is. What would you use to introduce someone to the, and depending on their age and, and what their background is and what they're about, certainly I think one of the most underrated and brilliant episodes of the original, the classic series, was the one where generally episodes where you just take stuff that's already been shot and work it in. Like when Riker gets stuck by that plant and they keep showing older scenes of him fighting things to try to get him back from like, that was one of the worst. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of these kinds of episodes, but they're basically to save budget. They just basically grab stuff that's already been shot and somehow work it in. But the menagerie, which took the original cage episode and it was a two parts is some of the best writing is just absolutely stunning, but people usually don't put that in the top five or 10 of the classic episodes. When it comes to next generation, uh, there's so many great ones, but to, to introduce someone, possibly either the inner light or, um, I would have to think about that one. Uh, yesterday's enterprise, would be handy if you've already known about what happened uh, with uh, Lieutenant Yar, but even then it stands alone enough and it's just so out of the box and, and kind of brilliant. Um, but um, yeah, there's a lot, you can't almost can't go wrong, but the ones that you listed are always uh, are good ones because how do you introduce someone? Sometimes someone catches the wrong episode and they think what the heck, and then they don't watch it anymore. So it's a good question. Very true, and that is quite often the case. If you jump into something in syndication and catch it in the middle, it may or may not, may or may not hook you. Uh, but that, by the way, that Riker episode, Shades of Grey, you were talking about the Riker recap episode. That my understanding is that that was because of the writer's strike, hmm. which is why they cobbled that together from the uh, the previous episode's bits. All right, let's move from the small screen to the printed word, Trevor. What's your favorite genre novel? Definitely Dune, Frank Herbert's masterpiece, to harken back to one of your earlier podcast episodes. 
Um, each chapter was like its own short story, uh, much like the Twilight Zone episodes. Now they could be taken as self-contained. And I'm, I'm a structure junkie, so when it comes to storytelling, the way Herbert plays with structure and point of view is just gorgeous. Okay, let's go to some smaller works, either short stories or novellas. What's your favorite genre shorter work? I'm actually going to pick a collection of short stories all by the same author for that. Smoke and Mirrors by Neil Gaiman. Um, I've read nearly everything that Gaiman's written, and that collection was just mind-blowing. Uh, second place, we'll go to Harlan Ellison's story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Uh, I'd say that I was gobsmacked, but hey, no mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was my introduction to Ellison as well. What a great introduction to him. Yeah, and and it was it was a real eye opener to just what you could do within short short fiction. Um, let's have your favorite genre author then. For that, I'm going to go with Terry Pratchett. Uh, I discovered his Discworld novels back when there were only two or three of them, <laughs> so that tells you how early it was. Well, when I heard Rick Green describing the luggage on his TV show Prisoners of Gravity. I knew that I just had to read them. And I just happened to be working at Canada's second oldest bookshop at the time, Britnell's. So I bought wow. the book first thing in the in the morning, the first book in the series, The Color of Magic, and then went on to devour everything he wrote as soon as he released it. Uh, and he's made me laugh even while riding the subway to the point where tears were running down my face. And he's also made me think. Uh, I find it remarkable that the complex philosophical concepts which he explores in his novels, and he makes them easily understandable. And I even had the opportunity to meet Terry Pratchett once, and I made him laugh. And Britnell's is where the two of us first met. Exactly. I Full disclosure. That's got to be like 90, maybe. I guess, I think it was 1990. Yeah. 89 or 90, thereabouts. Yeah, me, I could have been 89. Yeah. I, I made the big jump from uh, a very different bookstore, the world's biggest bookstore, to Britnell's. Um, all right, let's talk about concepts and themes in genre what's what's some of your favorite i'm going to just stick with science fiction for that definitely science fiction because really good sci-fi stories resonate with me um that's why i've spent decades working my way through the winners of the hugo and nebula awards uh, and oddly enough there's a star trek connection there with harlan ellison and the hugo awards uh, from the episode which you mentioned the city on the edge of forever um, which won won this show a hugo award do you have a favorite genre, theater production, or musical? I thought this was a really interesting question. Um, I have this theory that you could take any of the original episodes of The Twilight Zone and turn it into a fantastic short opera or musical. But until somebody does that, I'll have to settle for things which actually exist. Uh, I really fell in love with Camelot at a young age. Uh, my dad used to regale me with stories of King Arthur at bedtime and when I finally saw the film version of the musical Camelot, I realized that he was telling me scenes from that musical. Uh, but more recently, I, in terms of live productions, I really enjoyed Eldritch Theatre's live show Space Opera Zero. I don't know if you gentlemen had a chance to catch that. It was down at uh, Toronto's Red Sandcastle Theatre. That's the first time that I've ever really seen B-movies successfully brought to life. Uh, the show is hilarious, but they're not mocking the B-movie genre, uh, which would be a bit like shooting fish in a barrel. They're, you know, they're lovingly embracing it and celebrating it. And I, I grew up watching the B-movie double bill on the Buffalo TV station on Saturday afternoons. So I was over the moon to just see somebody finally successfully navigating that fine line between the ridiculous and the remarkable. 
David, you were giving a, an enthusiastic double thumbs yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which actually somehow came through on this podcast. Um, <laughs> so Alexa and I saw that Space Opera Zero, and we loved it. Alexa, yeah. you like Space Opera Zero, right? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, Alexa says, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So Eric's my, an old friend of mine. Yeah, from an old friend of hers. Uh, as I said, uh, Alexa and Trevor go way back um, with the whole theater thing and all that stuff. But yeah, Space Opera Zero, what a joy that was. I was saying, by the way, to uh, to my wife, Christy, the other day, Trevor, um, that I, th- I I'm pretty sure you know every third person I know. <laughs> there are these people who are sort of the, the linchpins or the hubs that everyone connects to. It's true. <laughs> I think you're keeping it all together. So thank you. We all thank uh, you. All of us out there who know you, we thank you. I'll keep Love trying. I, I seem to be a catalyst. Yeah. Um, now I've got, I'm going to put some money down here. Um, our next question involves comic book series and graphic novels. If you have a favorite, I'm going to say, cause you've already referenced Neil Gaiman. Could it be the Sandman? An interesting guess, and the the funny thing is, the Sandman is the one work of Gaiman's that I'm not an enormous fan of, and I know that is a, a, a controversial thing to say, but um, uh, I'm not sure what about it just didn't resonate with me. Uh, at the risk of crossing the streams, I'm going to say a collection called The Star Wars. Uh, okay. It was a uh, nine-issue series from Dark Horse Comics in 2013, and it's an adaptation of George Lucas's early rough draft of Star Wars. Uh, and it's not that the story is great. It's very, very rough. But the designs are what you can see evolved into what we saw in the films. And I just love seeing the creative process in action. And this was like a glimpse behind the curtain at what might have been. Excellent. How about genre poem? Do you have a fave? Oddly enough, one which I've heard chosen before on your podcast by your guests. Jabberwocky. Um, this uh, I didn't end up reading Alice in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass until high school, but when I did, I read the Martin Gardner annotated Alice, which was uh, which was fascinating. Uh, then I read Jabberwocky, and the next morning I was standing at the bus stop, and I thought about that poem, and I was shocked to discover that I remember mem- I remembered every single word of it <laughs> on a single reading, and it's been stuck in my head ever since. Second, second place, we'll go to The Hunting of the Snark, also by Lewis Carroll, but I don't have that one memorized. It's a little bit longer yet. And that's one of the first gifts I bought my wife to be, and I purchased it at Britnell's. Yes, nice, I bought mine at Britnell's too, oddly enough. A nice hardcover, <laughs> the, the red edition. That's the one. Yep, yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yep, and in fact, this episode is brought to you <laughs> by Britnell. No, okay. Um, and connections everywhere, but... Um, so uh, on to a Shakespeare and Star Trek. Troy Harkin will give some background, set it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. Freelance screenwriter Gene Roddenberry first began pitching his idea for a space western named Star Trek in 1964. Lucille Ball's studio, Desi Lu, showed interest in Star Trek, but worried because they'd already committed to another sci-fi show, Lost in Space. NBC was so intrigued They commissioned two pilots of Star Trek, The Cage and Where No Man Has Gone Before. Eventually, the NBC brass decided to slot the new show into its primetime schedule for the 1966-1967 season. 
Star Trek debuted in America on September 8th, 1966, two days earlier in Canada, actually. It ran for three seasons, consisting of 79 episodes, with its final episode airing on June 3rd, 1969. The show went into syndication later that year and has remained on the air for decades across the globe. Star Trek, the original series, followed the exploits of the crew of the USS Enterprise as it explored new planets and civilizations on a five-year mission. Helmed by Captain James T. Kirk, with support from Mr. Spock, a logical, emotionless Vulcan, the ship doctor McCoy, and the chief engineer Mr. Scott, the Enterprise sought out the objectives of their mission while often ending up in fisticuffs similar to those of Western films. Increasingly, Captain Kirk found many intergalactic love interests that inevitably ended up in his embrace. Its two lead actors, William Shatner as Captain Kirk and Leonard Nimoy as the pointy-eared Mr. Spock, became instant celebrities. Both men were so associated with the parts they played that it made it difficult for either to find work in later years. Luckily, they were both able to return to the parts they had made famous in big screen versions of Star Trek through the late 1970s and the 1980s. Twilight Zone creator Rod Serling once said of the series that Star Trek was again a very inconsistent show, which at times sparkled with true ingenuity and pure science fiction approaches. At other times, it was more carnival-like. During its initial television run, Star Trek was nominated for 13 Emmy Awards and won two Hugo Awards for Best Dramatic Presentation. The first Star Trek convention was held in New York in 1972. The event birthed the modern con as we now know it. Roddenberry's original Star Trek also gave rise to nine spin-off television series, 13 motion pictures, two animated series, a third is coming, comic books, toys, lunchbox, models, and collectibles of all kinds. Which brings us now to William Shakespeare. The following is cited from Wikipedia, although I should have used my copy of the Riverside Shakespeare, considering it's bigger than most family Bibles and cost me over $100 when I bought it at the U of T in 1991. And I did buy it at the U of T and not at Brindles. William Shakespeare was an English playwright, poet, and actor widely regarded as the greatest writer in the English language and the world's greatest dramatist. He is often called England's national poet and the Bard of Avon. Shakespeare was born in 1564 and died on April 23, 1616. The first folio of Shakespeare's collected works contains 39 plays. The official canon is made up of 16 comedies, 12 tragedies, and 11 histories. These include some of the best-known, most-performed plays of all time, such as A Midsummer Night's Dream, Hamlet, Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, Henry V, and Richard III. In addition to his plays, William Shakespeare wrote 154 sonnets and other poems in his short lifespan. Yet some 330 years after Shakespeare's plays were first performed at the Globe Theatre on the banks of the Thames, the essence of the Bard's works became inextricably linked to a television show called Star Trek. We're here to examine how and why this happened. How exactly did William Shakespeare and William Shatner, as well as all the captains and crew that followed, become so dang entangled? Um, Trevor, please tell us how you were first introduced to Star Trek and how you were first introduced to Shakespeare in their separate realms. When I was a little kid in the 1970s growing up in a court in the suburbs of Burlington, my older neighbor Andrew was a huge Star Trek fan. 
He built the Starship models. He read all of the James Blish novels. Heck, he even had a set of blueprints for the Enterprise, which I haven't seen anywhere since. Andrew used to organize clubs for the kids in the court, and each club would last a few weeks. Then the theme would change. I remember Shark Club and Geology Club and, of course, Star Trek Club. That one lasted longer than the others. I, I had seen episodes of the TV show, but somehow his enthusiasm and us painting the Delta insignia and rank stripes on our club T-shirts made me feel like I was a part of the show. As for Shakespeare, I remember my friends having an aversion to his plays, but never really understood why. I had a fantastic grade six teacher, Mrs. Long. She used to write original musicals for us to perform, and she had the whole class pick out from a handful of scene excerpts from Romeo and Juliet which ones to perform for each other. We just performed these short scenes in the library. I was nervous, and I stood there telling my friend how cute I thought Juliet was, but what I was actually saying was, Oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright. <laughs> Hearing Shakespeare's words was one thing, but actually speaking that gorgeous language made me hungry for more. Trevor, you may have already answered this question, next question in your response to the previous one, but if so, please expand on it. But what was it about the appearance of Shakespeare, if we could conflate the two, if we bring them together, when was it that you first realized that there was all the Shakespeare and Star Trek and, and why and did that appeal to you? Very much so. Um, with Shakespeare 400 years in the past and Star Trek, the original series, 200 years in the future, there's something very appealing about stories and characters with which we're familiar still being valuable and valid in the distant future. Um, some of the many writers for the show incorporated aspects of Shakespeare's plays in their scripts. Most didn't, and some seemed determined to cram as many references into their scripts as possible. Uh, finding these references, though, is a bit like finding an Easter egg in a film or a video game. It's a cross-genre tip of the hat, which has been left there for us to find. It's like a scavenger hunt. Uh, the episodes are enjoyable, even if you have no idea that those references are there. But finding them brings a kind of a spark of satisfaction. <laughs> and Shakespeare's stories and characters... They encompass such complexities that using those elements as a basis for an hour-long episodes really does, I think, give them a distinct advantage. Even if we don't recognize that the Horta is Caliban, we still recognize that there's a rich backstory behind what we're seeing. And I, I think that this makes the storytelling that much more satisfying. You know, Trevor, I knew you would be the perfect guest for this show uh, when David sort of uh, put the idea out there of an examination of Shakespeare and Star Trek. Um, one of the reasons that's so is you have performed every play, right? I've been very lucky. Uh, what have you done with your pandemic? I've performed in every <laughs> single Shakespeare play. <laughs> There's a, a group that meets every Monday night online, of course. And very shortly after the pandemic began, we uh, started performing a Shakespeare every week. And uh, so 40, week, 40 Mondays in a row, I performed at least one role in each. And, uh, and it's been an amazing overview. We haven't even edited the scripts. We've done the, the full four-hour versions of some of these that you'll never, ever see because no one does the full versions. That's and amazing. It's, it's yeah. just been fascinating. And so, you know, knowing your love of Shakespeare, knowing your love of Star Trek, you're the guy to, to sort of um, let people know, too, you know, because we're living through an era right now where things are constantly being pulled out of canon, you know, pulled out of uh, study. Um, 
let's let's let people who who have never known Shakespeare, you know, and those who have and maybe wonder why we're still looking at him. Well, why are we still looking at Shakespeare? Why are the plays still being produced all these centuries later? Because they're still relevant. Uh, but you need more than relevance to stand the test of time. They're also still entertaining and insightful, even after four centuries here in the 21st century. Uh, and that's why it's so easy to accept and believe that Shakespeare's plays would still be relevant and entertaining and insightful in the 23rd and 24th centuries, where the original series and next gen are set. Uh, Shakespeare writes characters who remind us of ourselves and people we know. We may not speak like those characters, but we recognize them. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw a production of Midsummer Night, and uh, it actually was a, it was a, it was on television. With it was Kevin Klein was in this production of um, Shakespeare in the Park in New York. That was and, a great version. And um, and I remember you know watching this thing, and I don't even know why I chose to watch it, but. I did, and I loved it, and I was—I laughed my ass off. And I remember thinking, "Oh, they've rewritten this. They—they they must have rewritten this." And I—I I ran off to a Coles books, and I was going through it and going, "No, this is all here. This is this Shakespeare. He's a funny guy." <laughs> you know? And of course, then I also realized that every sitcom I'd been watching, you know, since I'd been born, was based on, you know. Uh, misunderstandings overhearing something and then i realized well this is shakespeare this is a shakespeare device this all comes from shakespeare it keeps popping up everywhere doesn't it he does uh, so trevor and troy we should probably get into actual occurrences of where shakespeare does appear in in um star trek and we may miss some we might have ones that aren't listed but i thought we might want to mention the fact that we there are many sources where you can actually look this up at the moment we're just looking at something from a dr delahoyd from i think wsu which is i assume washington state university from spring of 2002 something called all the galaxies a stage shakespeare in the star trek universe and i was just wondering trevor if you want to start here and if we should just uh, see where we go Sure. Yeah, I'll start with the original series, of course. Um, and there are several titles, which, of course, are references to the plays of Shakespeare. Dagger of the Mind, the title, is a reference from Macbeth. Uh, the Conscience of the King, well, the title's a reference to Hamlet, but that really is uh, one of the most Shakespeare-crammed uh, episodes. It uh, is about a production of, uh, of the play on the Enterprise and a company of players, uh, much like as in Arian Hamlet coming on board, and the characters keep pivoting from one. Sorry, I've used the word pivot, what an overused word this year. <laughs> but but uh, I, the key characters keep changing from one role to another uh, as the play goes by. Uh, one point uh, character is Ophelia, another point uh, they're another character. Uh, yes. All our yesterdays. To, sorry, I guess. I was going to say that, yeah, The Conscience of the King seems to be one of uh, uh, the two big ones in the original mm -hmm. series that we could perhaps either on another episode go into depth on or if we get the chance. But, yeah, for sure, The Conscience of the King. Sorry, Trevor, go ahead. No, The Conscience of the King, there's a lot to, to un unpack in that particular episode in terms of what layers of Shakespeare are there because it's not just Hamlet and Macbeth. <laughs> and that's just what's very, 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 very clear. Um, Another Macbeth reference episode title, All Our Yesterdays. And then we have the episode By Any Other Name. Well, that's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, and he even uses a bit of bit of uh, Romeo and Juliet as a, uh, or a bit of, uh, 
uh, as a bit of a, a seduction speech with one of his, uh, his many women, with one of his many women. And uh, whom the gods destroy? Well, that one uh, character in that Marta quotes from one of the sonnets, sonnet number 18. Uh, Elan of Troyes. Well, this one is very much a, an updated version of The Taming of the Shrew. Where Kirk is playing the role of Petruchio, that's quite that's quite clear and quite consistent through the episode. It doesn't actually change to other characters. Uh, Cat's Paw is the uh, the plot of it borrows bits of Macbeth. It opens with the three witches warning off uh, Kirk and the landing right. party, and then uh, the uh, uh, roles of uh, of the two uh, two aliens are very much lady macbeth and macbeth and then kirk slips into the role of macbeth <laughs> just to carry on the episode but uh, in the in terms of the original series i do want to give a, a mention to harry mudd as well mm-hmm. not in this list but harry mudd has always been for me falstaff very much so and uh, I Mud is another one of the most Shakespeare crammed episodes. It's a much subtler in that one, but uh, that could be an entire episode unto itself to talk about what all is in there. Yeah, I was keeping that in mind when watching uh, Mud's Women uh, in the past week. And you're right. I mean, it seems like they've really uh, based the character and the portrayal of Mud on Falstaff. You're well, Falstaff off. is such a wonderful character <laughs> to see see that character popping up in other other places is not that surprising. But it's just it's a wonderful portrayal, and and it fits so well, and it so irks Kirk. Kirk is so it is so annoyed by this character in such wonderful ways, especially in Imod. Yeah, yeah. And there's also uh, I've always felt I don't know if there is some background on this whether or not. Uh, Roger C. Carmel was not available to play the role of the uh, character in Trouble with Tribbles. Trouble with Tribbles. Seemed, I've always thought the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, that that I feel it's almost a similar uh, kind of character. For sure. Yeah, Cyrano uh, Jones, yes. Yes. I had yes, actually yes. conflated that in my mind at one point. Uh, I had as well. That, and several other, several other people I knew thought that was that was uh, <laughs> that was Harry yeah. Mudd as well. Yeah, when you said Harry Mudd, the first thing I thought of was Trouble with Tribbles, <laughs> and obviously not him. We'll blame that on the Mandela effect, perhaps. That's right. Another episode? Yeah, give it give it another uh, 10 years and we'll, we'll find it's all changed. <laughs> exactly. They've also brought Mudd back in um, Discovery. Um, Rain Wilson, uh, I believe, is uh, playing. Ooh. There's also one of these short ones, short treks or whatever it was called. But uh, he's done a brilliant job. I thought he was excellent at bringing up, uh, playing that character, even though he seems like a much more powerful and much more dangerous character in this update than he was. He seemed more like a fool, but he was a fool with some power and he could affect things. So he certainly, that aspect still continues. Uh, and also with Falstaff, is, by uh, the way. Yeah, they keep going back to fall. Like, I, like he is the, the character that appeared the most often just about in the original. In fact, he has the most lines. Uh, I had this list in it, uh, from a website and it list, looks like he had the most speeches throughout Shakespeare that character Falstaff. 
Yes, the most lines in one play is definitely Richard III, but Falstaff had a few plays to, to cram those words in. And when it comes to the animated series, because it's been a while since I've seen it, but there is a reference in this article that we're looking at about one of the episodes. There is. I, I loved the animated series as a kid. Of course, when when I had uh, had watched the the original series over and over and over, the animated series gave me more. Uh, and the the one reference is from King Lear, uh, and that's the title of the episode: "How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth." Next Generation has oodles of uh, references. Most of these are much more uh, much more overt. Uh, I actually, oddly enough, have uh, have the same edition that, that uh, Picard has, has of the collected works under glass. Mine's red, his is black, but it's. Uh, it, I was quite pleased to see that he had <laughs> had that edition uh, in uh, in a, a special spot in his in his uh, ready room. But it even starts just at the beginning with Encounter at Farpoint. Uh, he actually mentions the one quotation that everyone remembers from Henry the Henry the Sixth Part Two. The first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. <laughs> the Naked Now, uh, uh, as well, from the Merchant of Venice, uh, Data very uh, coyly says, when you prick me, do I not leak? <laughs> Hide and Q. Well, the Q character. The Q character is just fabulous. Um, uh, apparently, Delancey wanted to, to find a way to get onto the series, and so they wrote this character for him. Just such a such a, a wonderful, wonderful character that that uh, once again very much uh, annoying Picard in the same way that uh, Harcourt Fenton Mud annoys Kirk. It's a great dynamic, and uh, in Hyde and Q, the uh, Q actually quotes uh, misquotes uh, much to the annoyance of Picard. All the galaxy is a stage, and Picard feels the need to correct him, of course. The whole thing yes. with Picard. Well, Picard then uh, goes on. With, exactly, he uses something which was which was not intended as a defense from Hamlet, as a defense of humanity for Q. And of course, the whole idea, the whole storyline with Q is that that humanity is on trial. <laughs> and so Picard mm -hmm. takes something which was was uh, not meant as a defense and uses it beautifully. What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculties! In form and moving! How express and admirable in action! How like an angel in apprehension! How like a god! Which should have gotten through to Q, being godlike in his own way. I thought it was a nice touch. Uh, the Defector, uh, as well, the episode there, Data and Picard, uh, as the episode opens, are on the holodeck performing a scene from Henry V around the campfire, which is, which is uh, an interesting opening uh, uh, just to, to establish, further establish the relationship between those two characters. What scene are they doing? They're doing the uh, scene around the campfire, which uh, is a conversation between between Henry and uh, a couple of characters whom they've conflated, uh, Williams and Court, and it's the it's the little touch of Harry in the night. Oh, uh, pre before pre, pre battle, yeah. precisely. Yeah, they do talk about that during when they're practicing, and Data wonders why would you want to dress up, and why would you want to not appear as the king, and just you know, do this with the others. And it's just a way of being able to find out what people are actually thinking. Um, and, and you don't always want to present yourself. Um, so they actually analyze, they actually do this thing where they're actually analyzing Shakespeare and talking about what, what are they trying to accomplish here in this play as again, data tries to become more human. So I thought it was quite brilliant uh, use of Shakespeare there. 
it is very clever because it's furthering data's exploration and attempt to understand humanity and this is something that really does explore it in a, in a way that is, is less than obvious. It, it was great to see it incorporated into the series. A few other uh, title references, uh, Sins of the Father, the episode titles taken from The Merchant of Venice. Uh, and then we have Picard going on his rant <laughs> in, in Menage à uh, Troy. Uh, he, he quotes uh, quite a bit from uh, from that episode, um, the sonnets and from Othello. Uh, it's uh, where he's attempting to to get uh, Loxana Troy back, and and basically launches into Shakespeare on the bridge at the view screen, much to the confusion of the other bridge crew, <laughs> I think. But he just it takes as an opportunity to use this wonderful language. Another episode title, Remember Me. There are quite a few episode titles here. And, and the fascinating thing with the titles in the next gen is that some of them are taken from poetry. Some of them, that's something that, that, uh, that sound like references. Uh, you know, they're, they're, it turns out that they are lines from poems or lines from Shakespeare or titles from Shakespeare. And it's, it's just amazing to see how, how it does really color the episode that, it, that the, it's like a, a really good headline on an article <laughs> that you can get through. I'd like to throw it in there, but but if it's a, if it really really accentuates, it's really really helps. Uh, Remember me from Hamlet, another good title reference. And then we have the the performance of the crew in San Francisco with uh, in Times Arrow Part Two, the one the episode with Mark Twain. The landlady comes uh, barging into the room, and so they they say that they're doing a, a production of uh, of Midsummer Night's Dream, and give her a role and uh, applaud her performance, and it and, and she of course is very flattered and forgets to ask for the rent, but uh, it's just a, a lovely little uh, lovely little bit where where they're all performing the the uh, the bit of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, and it's very much interposed into the episode, but it is great fun. Uh, two more episode uh, references in, in Next Gen. There are, of course, uh, others that we won't touch on because they're less overt. But uh, Thine Own Self, well, that's from Polonius' speech in Hamlet. And in Emergence, uh, we open that episode with Data doing the final scene from The Tempest as Prospero, another wonderful character. And, uh, of course, Picard is introduced data to Shakespeare as an attempt to say this is what humanity is all about. Know these works and you will understand humanity far better. And so data is exploring it through through these, these wonderful characters and much of the plot is really taken from The Tempest uh, in that episode. It's um, The Tempest overarches the, the Star Trek quite a bit. Uh, in many ways, there are references in the uh, the pilot and Menagerie the Cage, and uh, there are other other references and overlays to it throughout. Uh, and I really do think that perhaps that was something that was was kept in mind, perhaps by DC Fontana and the the people who were overseeing the story of stories on the show. That the idea of this uh, this storm tossed ship <laughs> very much was an analogy for the Enterprise. In space. Yeah, I was actually really surprised uh, in in prepping for this when I when I watched Requiem for Methuselah uh, from uh, season three of the original series um, because I had not seen it before, and then to see how overtly the Tempest it was, <laughs> you know, where you've got Miranda and you've got Prospero, 
I know it's thought of quite highly by that was written by uh, Jerome Bixby, who also wrote the Twilight Zone episode. It's a wonderful, it's, it's a good life. The one with Anthony wishing people into the cornfield. Um, and I, he did a few other, uh, if yeah, he did four other Star Trek episodes, including mirror, mirror. Um, and it aired on Valentine's day, which I thought was very nice. <laughs> Isn't it though? Yeah. And uh, I maintain that uh, the devil in the dark is also very much a, a, a tempest story with the with the as i mentioned before the horta as caliban yeah and you can never lose once you get caliban in there well exactly <laughs> yeah um and i guess we should mention that um i know some people have accused um that specific episode requiem from methuselah of sort of being a ripoff of forbidden planet in some ways um <laughs> and forbidden planet itself clearly is a ripoff of the tempest exactly so, earlier yeah. tropes perhaps exactly exactly the uh the next the next generation uh as well uh goes well let's go back to the original series the original series movies the mm -hmm. The uh, the voyage home. Uh, McCoy quotes Hamlet in one of his his classic. This is as uh, the fourth film, uh, Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home. Uh, McCoy in one of his one of his classic uh, um, uh, expressions of frustration actually quotes Hamlet. He says, "Angels and ministers of grace defend us," <laughs> which I think is a lovely little little thing to. I'm just going to keep that in my back pocket. I think. Yeah. Next time I'm excited. Yes. <laughs> I want that. And that's also, a, that's also a good scene because um, we're not sure if if uh, Spock is all the way back after what happened in Star Trek Three, the search for Spock, where mm -hmm. he's got his Katra back. And when he quotes that, then immediately um, Spock says, oh, well, that's act, you know, Hamlet act for a scene two, or whatever it was. And then mm -hmm. and then that makes Kirk think, OK, well, obviously he's got enough. <laughs> to be able to figure out how we can go back in time or forward in time or be able to return at least back to their present. There's some Spock still in there. That's uh, mm. that's true. It's a bit, bit of a crux moment there. And then we come to Star Trek VI, the undiscovered country. <laughs> well, General Chang, here we have Christopher Plummer as a Klingon. What a wonderful moment for Canadians everywhere. <laughs> Not only do we have Kirk, and oddly enough, um, Shatner and Plummer were at the Stratford Festival together. Mm. And uh, Shatner was actually playing, he was the understudy to Christopher Plummer as Henry V. And one evening, Shatner had to go on and uh, perform it. And Plummer was quite bemused by Shatner's performance because an understudy normally just slavishly follows the very steps that the lead takes well Plummer said well this guy sat down where i stood up he stood up where i sat down he delivered everything totally differently and from that moment i knew he was going to be a star <laughs> so they these two working together again uh, i get the impression they really enjoyed each other's each other's company but that general chang just goes through the the canon of Shakespeare quite mercilessly. <laughs> I, I, I'll quickly list the, the plays from which he cribs. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, Richard the Second, 
Uh, I just played actually that role uh, last Monday. Uh, Henry V, Julius Caesar, The Tempest, Merchant of Venice, and Hamlet. And of course, uh, the the very bit. Uh, and even even Iman works in a little reference to to Shakespeare there too. Uh, she's the shapeshifter, uh, Mar- Marcia. And uh, she says of, from Hamlet, I thought I would assume a pleasing shape. <laughs> just know the, the writer thought, oh, I have to work that into. That's just too perfect yeah. not to work in there. Now, I, I just, I was watching uh, Wrath of Khan the other day and watching with the director's commentary as I want to, if I have the opportunity. So Nicholas Meyer was saying that uh, he was hoping that they were going to call Star Trek to the undiscovered country, but, but the studio worried that there was too much tipping of the hat to death themes and they had already had a hard enough time keeping uh, and keeping Spock's death under wraps. Um, so they decided to bump that and put it in their back pocket and use the undiscovered country for later, which is, of course, from, I guess, Hamlet's uh, most famous soliloquy, uh, although he was kind of the Babe Ruth of soliloquies. Um, there's not a bad one there. Uh, but yeah, another tip of the hat to death. I had heard that about the undiscovered country. I do wonder how many people would have actually gotten the reference, but certainly the people right. speculating on the title would <laughs> would have uh, would have thought not something was definitely up. That's um, right. Yes, it was one of those moments. But I mean, the wonderful thing about Wrath of Khan is that it's Moby Dick, mm. and Khan quotes from Moby Dick. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> so unlikely. And I was thinking this through when I first saw it, but and thought, but does this make Kirk the White Whale? And indeed it does. <laughs> is, <That's great>. is, <laughs> it's such an odd overlay and it works so well. But when they scrolled across in the, in the botany bay, uh, they, when they scrolled across uh, uh, this bookshelf there in the introductory scene, it shows a, a great many books from which that, that uh, film draws sources, uh, which, is, which is an interesting little tip of that as well. Now, Trevor, I thought that uh, we were really doing our audience uh, a service when we told them that the pie plates in Plan 9 were not actually pie plates. They were models that were UFOs and not pie plates. I thought we were educating our audience then, but I think we've actually stepped it up a bit a notch with this episode so far. So carry on. Well, there are a few references in Deep Space Nine and Voyager, but as a... as I say, Deep Space Nine is a, is more beholden to film noir than it is to Shakespeare. And it was fascinating to see how it drew from film noir uh, for many of the episodes. Of course, as soon as I realized, oh, this episode is Casablanca, I knew exactly how it was going to end. But but it, it was those were fun episodes. Uh, but see, the, the references in the titles for Deep Space Nine were Past Prologue from The Tempest, Heart of Stone from Twelfth Night, Once More Into the Breach, should be unto, of course, from Henry V, and the dogs of war from Julius Caesar. Uh, so that, uh, uh, that is, uh, is really the main bit. There are, there are small bits in Deep Space Nine, but really the, the Shakespeare references in Star Trek are primarily in the, ep- the original series and next gen. Uh, Voyager, the one overt reference to that is also an episode title, Mortal Coil, which is from that famous soliloquy again, <laughs> Hamlet. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder actually how much of the soliloquy we can piece together just from titles that were used. It would be fascinating just to take that all those bits and see how much we could put together of it. I suspect it would be a good chunk. 
Yeah. And you know, you just can't, you can't go wrong if you are borrowing from Will Shakespeare, even if it's just your titles. Uh, it sure beats something like uh, a title like uh, the one about the monkey, say. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, borrow from the, you know, talent borrows genius steals and borrow from the best, I say. Yeah. Where are we off to, David? We've got about 15 minutes left. And we've got a nice uh, segment here. And I was wondering, Troy, if you want to uh, introduce it, because I think we're going to, the three of us are going to take on roles and do some Shakespearean version of something. So, Troy, do you want to introduce this uh, part? Well, I thought we could, um, considering we have Trevor here and he's an excellent actor, we could um, display some of his chops as well as, you know, David and I, we don't like to talk about it, but we're also, you know, quite well trained in terms of the, the thespian arts. Um, and we thought we could perhaps put on a performance by the tandem flatulence of antiquity players, their version of Spock's brain by William Shakespeare. Spock, what hath happened? I have found that gent on the table. Liketh this? Nay, not liketh this. What hath happened? I knoweth not. We did get that gent on complete as life support. Was that gent dead? That gent was worse than dead. What doth he call him there? Jim... Cometh on, Bones. What's the mystery? His brain hath vanished like the moon from the sunlit sky. Is what? Tis been removed surgically, as if by the blade of Galen. How couldst that gent survive? Tis the greatest show of skill that could be dreamt of. Every cerebral stem and stream sealed and stymied. No thing ripped, no thing torn nor tarnished, nay, no thing spotted crimson. Tis a miracle of the medical arts. If to be true his brain is missing, then Spock is dying. Nay, yond incredible Vulcan physique did cling until the life support cycle did offer relief. I tell you this, his mortal coil liveth on. The autonomic functions remain, yet there is no mind. Yond wench. Aye. What wench doth of thee speak? From yon ship, the lady tooketh it. I knoweth not wherefore or where, but the lady might not, but has taken it. Bones, how longeth can they keepeth that gent functioning? My word of certainty, I cannot give it thee. Yon's not valorous enough, doctor. Truly. Hath happened to any of us, I'd sayeth without end. But Vulcan physiology itself limits our outcome of what may be done. That which is the flesh and blood of Spock is more dependent on yon tremendous brain for life support. Then we'll taketh that gent with us. Taketh that gent? Taketh that gent where? In searcheth of his brain, doctor. From what thee saith, the moment we findeth it, we will restore it to his course, or we loseth that gent. Jim, where art thee going to behold? The entirety of the cosmos and Christendom? 
Where shall the quest for Spock's brain? What tactics shall merit victory? Thou findeth it. Providence may favor thine efforts, yet I cannot reinstate that which has been deposed. I have neither the training nor the tools. A salamander is surely more likely to fly. T'was taken out. It can be beast putteth backeth in. But I knoweth not how. The cut purse yawn tooketh it as the knowledge. I'll force it out of her. Jim, if it be true, thee findeth not within the passage of a day, then thee best remove such visions of valor from thine mind's eye. Thee and Scotty hast spark eft. And curtain. All right. It's amazing how they changed the language for the syndicated version. <laughs> I know. I've worked in box offices for many years, and whenever we <laughs> sold tickets for a production of any Shakespeare, we always had several people inquiring, has the language been updated? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's sad. Well, Spock's brain never sounded better have to admit that because that I was on TV just in the last month. I was watching it, but I was thinking what the F again, because it was just the weird, there's this one control unit with three buttons on it. And somehow that allows Spock to be able to turn, walk, move his arm, grab this woman by the arm and be able to press the, some button to release these control things on them. It, it's, it, it's incredible. Yeah. When I saw the Rod Serling quote about sort of the unevenness of the series, I immediately thought of Spock's brain and City on the Edge of Forever. And it's funny how two episodes could be so different. To quote Serling, carnival, carnival. <laughs> yes, yeah. so it's such a wonderful exhibit. And who, what child did not want a remote control Spock? Yes. Oh, now I have to ask you quickly, because this is something I wanted to throw in. And it's not a long thing, but I just need to know from both of you, sort of like Sophie's choice. If you could only have one 10-year-old Trevor and 10-year-old David, would it be the Star Trek phaser gun that shot the discs, or would it be the model of the USS Enterprise? I had that little phaser that shot the discs i wish i knew what had become of it but uh, it was it was a cherished possession i would have also liked the model but but uh, that was definitely if i had the choice of the two that was definitely what i would have, would have wanted how about you david um w why not both as right oh no said. i broke your brain <laughs> i broke your brain i can tell um it's sophie's uh, choice but, but no i did like the enter yeah, yeah, it's Sophie's choice is tough. Uh, I would certainly go with the model of the Enterprise. Yeah. I did construct a model of the bridge, which was quite fascinating as a kid to really learn. It was great to be able to sort of place myself in there in, in my mind's eye. Someday I would still love to stand on a model of the bridge. Yeah, I remembered that even though I wasn't watching the show as as a hardcore fan yet, because I wasn't a hardcore fan for many, many years, I'm still really not. I'm a sort of... Uh, fairly pedestrian Trek, Trek fan. But um, I did have the, the model, which I loved. But I also remember that as a child, I used to take a spoon and turn it upside down and pretend that it was the Enterprise, 
playing like at, at, at the table, you know, and I must've been, you know, very young. No, I was 24, <laughs> but no, I was, I was probably about four and I would do that. And I was just like, I would always think of it like, and think of the opening of the, the show because my parents would watch it. But I always thought this, a spoon looked like the, the mm. bulk of the enterprise. Utensils as inspiration for sci-fi modeling. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things that Trevor and I were talking about when the three of us were prepping last week about this episode, because there was that group in Toronto that was doing parodies and doing fun with Star Trek. But at one point, they had these two uh, pylons or, or these two nacelle, nacelle-like things and this band, and this hat, and then they suddenly bent down, put them behind them like they were the Enterprise and they were scooting in front of the stage. Uh, and it was quite a lot of fun. <laughs> oh yes, the sombrero version of the Enterprise. I thought that was very yeah. good. That was that was the chumps. I remember them well. Yes, nice. that's right. It was a sombrero and these two, two uh, tube-like things, um, almost like those pool noodles kind of things, but not quite. Mm. But anyway, so we, we've got we have to get into Dreamcast. We've got about ten minutes left, and that's when the person, of course, holds up the sign at the back of the uh, the, the panel at the convention saying we've got about 10 minutes left. So we're going to get into dreamcasting, which is something we've been doing for the last five or six episodes. So uh, uh, basically, uh, Troy, did you want to get into how the dreamcasting works? We're first tackling the idea of casting great Shakespearean actors in the original Star Trek roles from the original series. And... And then figuring out which Shakespearean roles the original cast would have been great at. So let's do this. And for for the sake of um, uh, just entertaining my voyeuristic uh, pleasures, I'm I'm going to sort of uh, stand by and watch a little bit. Although I will be throwing my two cents in um, as well. So we're going to start off with the characters of James T. Kirk, Spock, and Leonard McCoy. So, what do you got, and, and Troy? You're going to let us go. So, Trevor, yeah, I'll do mine first if that's okay. Of course. Um, for the first three, uh, which are the primary roles from the original series, the Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, I pick Kenneth Branagh uh, for James T. Kirk. I pick Olivier as Spock, and I picked Jerry Harden as Leonard McCoy. I'm loving that. I really like that, David. I, and it's, I mean, it's tough when you've got Olivier in there, but Brana can be a little bit uh, over the top sometimes. So I like, I like him as Kirk. I like his Shatner-esque qualities. I think Kirk has to be a bit over the top. Yeah. I actually uh, came up with a couple of options for Kirk. I was thinking Derek Jacoby would be a fascinating Kirk. Oh, yeah. Or even Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole was just so cocky and in your face in Lawrence of Arabia. I could definitely see that working for the role of Kirk as well. Yes. For Spock, uh, for Spock, I was really thinking uh, Ian McKellen would be an interesting Spock. Very reserved. But I could also see Jonathan Price doing it. Be a very different Spock, but I think that would also work quite interestingly. Uh, and McCoy, well, the irascible McCoy. I was thinking two Shakespearean actors who could pull this off would be either Ian Holm Mm. Would be an interesting, grumpy sort of McCoy, or David Tennant might have a little bit more of an edge to it, but uh, but I think that would be a very interesting 
uh, frustrated character, uh, frustrated with what was happening around him uh, all the time sort of, sort of approach. Right. I like both of those choices, Trevor. They have a nice gruff edge to them. Yeah, and I had Ian McKellen originally as a Spock before I switched over to Olivier. Interesting. Um, I was thinking of, yep. Um, and then for the next four, uh, for Scotty, Uhura, Sulu, and Chekhov, I've got for Scotty, Patrick Stewart. And this is more of the Patrick Stewart from, ah. um, uh, now my brain is melting because I usually put the quotes underneath, but I, Claudius kind of oh, Patrick yes. as a Scotty. Um, Ruby D as Uhura, uh, Yukio Ninagawa as Sulu, and Constantine Stanislavski as Chekhov. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. But of course. <laughs> Although, can you imagine he would be a real bitch to be around on, on set, I would think. <laughs> You're not doing it right. Yes, well, he'd, he'd definitely be a uh... Uh, telling, uh, giving notes to the other actors. I think that's the way we push, would put it. Um, yeah. Montgomery Scott. Um, I was thinking Christopher Plummer would be an interesting Montgomery Scott. Um, uh, just the sort of uh, uh, sound of music Christopher Plummer uh, uh, character. But also Brian Cox could be very, very interesting, I think, as Scott. Um, just a thought. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Trevor. Sorry. No, Troy, you were going to make a comment. I was just going to say, I, I'm, you know, technically I'm not playing here, but I, I was sort of surprised that uh, neither of you chose Alan Cumming. I sort of thought he might mm. have made a nice Scott as well. Very much. Yes. Yes, I could definitely see that. <laughs> I. Mm. Um, Uhura, I actually was envisioning Maggie Smith in this role from the, the prime of Miss Jean Brody era. Mm. I, I thought that could be a rather interesting Uhura. Um, for Sulu, uh, I don't know if I picked one of the ones you picked for uh, from or your earlier list. Uh, Kenneth Branagh, I thought, might be an interesting Sulu, or even Ben Kingsley, uh, just to take the character in a different direction there. But uh, but I just thought that, that could be could be a, a slightly different dynamic. And Chekhov. Well, I don't know what you'll think of my choices for Chekhov. Two possibilities: uh, the first, F. Murray Abraham. Okay. But the second one is Judy Dench. I'm going with a cross show. Oh, cross. I love, I love I, the ginger I, I love Judy Dench, and she could do anything, quite frankly. But just seeing her as sort of this cocky checkoff, but of course, what it, I just think that could be very, very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> totally different direction. All righty. So now we go uh, to the outer, outer limits of our thinking. We go to outside of the box um and again we're we're now looking at uh various shakespearean characters and who could play them um and david what do you what do you have in mind for this yeah one? yeah and we didn't come up with a list of like like we just left this open because we didn't sp pick specific characters that we have to then come from come up with we just came so, up with our own so i made the characters i have may not match trevor well, trevor may so, have his own so, list of characters so if i said to you lady Macbeth, who would you say should play her from from track well for me i've got uh, gates mcfadden uh, who played dr crusher from tng um 
uh, in that role. It would be neat to see which uh, which roles uh, Trevor picked, because certainly there are just so many. We could have picked 30 or 40 different Shakespearean characters and done them all. Uh, but I'll just quickly go through this list, because I know we're short of time. But Ariel, I would have as Cass from Voyager. Cleopatra, I was thinking of Belana Torres. Mercutio is Jordi LaFor- uh, uh, as Jordi LaForge. Mm-hmm. Falstaff is going to be Harry Mudd or Cyrano Jones. Uh, Prospero, T- Timison. David Ogden Steers played a, uh, a character in Half a Life where he had to die at the age of 60. But David Ogden Steers, I thought, would just be perfect as Prospero. Uh, Moriarty, the, the, Daniel Davis, who played Moriarty in a TNG episode, I thought uh, could be Macbeth and then Dr. Neelix's Caliban. So that's sort of my, I didn't pick everyone, but that's, that's a start. Okay. Very interesting. And the, the hardcore phantom mud as Falstaff we've already discussed. And I, <laughs> yeah. I heartily endorse, I approach this a little bit differently. I went through the, uh, the, um, characters from the original series, the seven whom we'd mentioned. And I took a look at what, uh, what roles, from Shakespeare, I would like to see those characters, not necessarily the actor, but those characters play. And Kirk, well, Kirk is so many uh, of the Shakespeare characters over the over the course, but I would love to see Kirk performing Henry V. I think that would be a, a natural. Uh, as for Spock, this one I wrestled with. I really thought that uh, it has to be a character that has a certain gravitas to it, and the one who came to mind was Mark Antony. I could see Spock addressing the friends, Romans, and countrymen quite well. and quite It's a very logical argument, and it struck me as very suiting Spock. McCoy. I think McCoy would be a very interesting Richard III. We spoke about how that has the most lines out of anything, and certainly hearing McCoy going on rants would be wonderful. So much of McCoy is a response or a grumpy comment. I would love to hear that character really let let fly on a soliloquy. Yeah. And is that who who you chose um, in Home to Play? Yes. McCoy? Yeah, I thought yes. yeah, he'd, be, he'd be great McCoy too. Yes, I, I really would. I would love to see Ian Holmes McCoy. I think that would be a, be a natural, natural <laughs> casting. Yeah. Montgomery Scott. Picture him as Macbeth. Mm. <laughs> it would be odd, but it would be oddly satisfying. <laughs> it would be great. <laughs> Uhura, well, I was really thinking about a, 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 the character from Twelfth Night Viola. Uh, is disguised as Cesario. I thought that, that would be a very interesting uh, way to see see Uhura uh, performing as this character who is very much in charge of things. I would love to see that happen. It's uh, I, I often feel for Uhura that she's she's important, but it feels like the really important bits were edited out. <laughs> I'm sure they never existed in the first place, but I would love to see her, her more involved and more in charge. Uh, Sulu. Sulu, I think, would be a very interesting suitor of Beatrice and much do about nothing. Benedict. Mm-hmm. I think that that back and forth Sulu has a certain confidence and bravado that I think would make a fantastic Benedict. And Chekhov. Ah, Chekhov. Only joined in season two. It's funny, when you watch the series in order, you realize this, but when I, growing up, I, of course, only saw it out of order in syndication. And uh, Chekhov seemed like such an integral part of the bridge crew that to see him added later on was a bit jarring, but uh, he, I thought has the cockiness to be Petruchio 
to be the suitor of Katharina in The Taming of the Shrew. I thought that Chekhov, his attitude would be just perfect for that. That's fantastic. Thank you, Trevor. Yeah, excellent. And this was a great episode. A final question about uh, Shakespeare and Star Trek um, uh, for Trevor. Is there anything that you picked up in the last, say, five or ten years about just the idea of Shakespeare appearing in Star Trek that you didn't know before that possibly surprised you when you learned about it? I think what surprised me is just how much Shakespeare there was, uh, how much the the playwright was on the mind of some of the writers of the episodes of the original series. Not all of the episodes, but many of them. Uh, there were always the overt references, like the titles of a couple of episodes, or more than a couple, being Shakespeare quotations. But the elements of the characters and the story elements, the overlays from Shakespeare, are incorporated into the structure of the episodes in ways that aren't always obvious, but it's often there. And the thing which really strikes me about that is that those episodes are the better for it. Uh, maybe it just took performing in all of Shakespeare's plays to prime me to notice that sort of thing. But we all utter Shakespeare's phrases without even realizing it. You know, regardless of whether you've studied, seen, or performed in his plays, and even if you don't like Shakespeare, he's permeated our language and our culture in ways that that are not always obvious. Shakespeare actually is all around us. <laughs> Do you know the reference? Mary Tyler Moore. Love actually, actually. <laughs> Close. <Yeah. laughs> Shakespeare's all around, mm. no need to know. <laughs> I like that even yeah. better. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to point out uh, to our listeners, our followers, uh, who we uh, fondly call Toffees, um, that um, you did a wonderful reading of an early story of mine called When the Hand of Glory Rocks, The Cradle of Doom, Everybody Sleeps one of my favorite uh, titles, if not necessarily my favorite story, but you did a a wonderful reading of it on uh, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Uh, It's the Creepypasta site on YouTube. So if you want to uh, check out uh, some of uh, Trevor's voice work, uh, that's a good example because he he takes a story that isn't so hot and he makes it really come alive. Um, But Trevor, is there anything that you wanted to uh, share with the audience, uh, what, what you're up to or anything you wanted to promote? Sure, yeah. No, basically, I just want to, to uh, mention my notorious Renaissance quartet, the Gemsman. Uh, we all play an extinct medieval instrument called a Gemshorn. And uh, we'll be releasing our first album later this year. Uh, the, in terms of board games, I'm designing and developing a, a fairly unique board game called Rookery. The names to play on ravens and castles and incorporates both elements into the game. And I hope to have it available uh, for you to buy online and at a Ren Fair near you sometime in 2022. Uh, I'm also right. researching my first book. Yeah, well, board games are always, always great. I, uh, I know, grew up playing so many board games. It's just, it's lovely to be able to create something new for people. Uh, and I'm re- researching and writing my first book with the working title, Oddly controversial things. Conser- oh, oddly controversial things. Conversational depth charges for any occasion. And uh, in terms of voice work, uh, you can hear me on Story More in the audio adaptation of uh, the novel The Diary of Marjorie Blake uh, on YouTube as a bloodthirsty berserker Viking in a six-part historical drama based around the Battle of Stamford Bridge. I play Agnar, the title character in The Last Pagan Warrior. 
And I did want to thank you, Paul, uh, Troy, for allowing me to read your st- wonderful story on the Evil Idol voice acting competition. Uh, it uh, was my round one entry. We've not yet heard if I'm moving on to round two, but uh, it had a wonderful reception. And I remembered this story from you allowing me to read an early draft of it uh, back in the depths of time. And uh, it is immediately sprung to mind as something that I wanted to read for this podcast. So thank you once again, Troy, for letting me perform that uh, wonderful story. And thank you both, David and Troy, for having me on your podcast. I had a great time. Well, it was honored to have you and honored to have you read the story as well. Yeah, Trevor, excellent. And uh, maybe down the road we can look at, because one of the things that I love about classic Trek, but also some of the later ones, are the speeches. Let's forget Shakespeare for a minute, but just the great speeches that Kirk and Picard, you know, like the first duty, or when uh, Kirk tells Spock in the mirror universe to be that man that makes a difference to change and so on. There's just so many great speeches, such great writing in the series. It'd be great to look at that more in depth and to um, uh, do something like that. But Trevor, thank you so much for your expertise and 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 for sharing um, the last hour or so with us. Um, it's it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. This has and been I wonderful. I love the idea of the soliloquies of Star Trek. And congratulations again to to David and Alexa. Yes, indeed. Congratulations. Yep. One week away. Uh, So, but that's our Shakespeare and Star Trek episode. And I hope you all enjoyed it. And and certainly uh, go to 20f.ca, 201st Talk Sci-Fi website to see uh, other episodes. See you all for the next podcast episode of two old farts talk sci-fi